she said, I, I'm not going to put up with this. She says, I'd, I'd rather be married to a jerk because at least I know a jerk's going to treat me bad all the time. She said, you treat me so well uh, and everybody thinks you're such a great guy, but then you turn around and do things that are so hurtful to me and you need to go get help. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hello, friends. I hope your week is going well. I hope it's off to a good start and you had a good weekend. I certainly did. As I mentioned, I think two weeks ago, I was down in Phuket in the south of Thailand, and I had an absolutely wonderful time getting a little too much sun and spending time on the beach and all that good stuff. So I'm feeling recharged, re-energized, and uh, ready for more podcasting. I'm very excited to share this week's episode, and I think I probably say that every week, um, but I'm especially excited this week My guest this week is Dr. Robert Glover. Dr. Glover is the author of easily one of the most influential, widely read, impactful self-help books of the past 30 or 40 years, I'd say. No More Mr. Nice Guy is Dr. Glover's opus, and it is one of the books, I'd say one of the two books I find myself recommending to men most often. Uh, That and David Data's The Way of the Superior Man which is another book, actually, Dr. Glover and I discuss in today's episode. I'll leave it to Dr. Glover to define what the nice guy syndrome is. But basically speaking, nice guy syndrome, to my mind at least, is a problem that is pretty unique to the 21st century man. You know, in in a lot of ways, it's never been more confusing to try to find out, you know, what does masculinity mean to me? What kind of a man do I want to be? What does it mean to be a good man? Um, And what's the line between, you know, taking care of the people I care about, showing my woman I love her, etc., and ignoring or denying my own needs. So in today's episode, Dr. Glover and I get into all of that. We cover a lot of the themes that he tackles in No More Mr. Nice Guy. We also talk more generally about relationships and how men and women can enjoy better relationships. We talk a little bit about sex and seduction, which I particularly enjoyed. And we talk about jealousy. We really cover a lot of ground in today's interview, and I really hope you stick around because this is quite a special episode in my view. Before we get into it, I'll remind you that ratings and reviews are absolutely crucial for any podcast success. So if you dig the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Without any further ado, I present to you the author of No More Mr. Nice Guy, Dr. Robert Glover. Dr. Glover, first off, welcome to my podcast. And, and again, thank you for making time for me today. I know you've done a million podcasts, and I really appreciate you uh, carving out an hour today. Well, Zachary, thanks for the invitation. Uh, I'm looking forward to our interview. And the first question I have for you, it was, I was intrigued. Uh, am I finding you, you're in Mexico today? I live in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. I'm here today. Tomorrow I'll be in Seattle. A couple of days later, I'll be in Orlando, Florida. But uh, this is home. And I'm really curious how and why you ended up there. 
I ended up here because in about 1999, about 20 years ago, uh, my I was married uh, to my second wife at that time, and she planned a retreat, a women's retreat down here with a group she worked with. I got invited to tag along, and I, I grew up, spent most of my life in Seattle, Washington, and if anybody knows Pacific Northwest of the U.S., uh, is known for its rain and it is, <laughs> is, is gray, gloomy, short dayed winters. And I'd spent most of my life there and I came down to Puerto Vallarta in late October and it was sunny and warm and blue skies. And, and I remember sitting in a sidewalk cafe, a uh, happy hour, two big margaritas and guacamole for under five bucks. And I thought, I, I, I want to come back here. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. o- over time I kept coming back and then really got to the place where I thought, you know, I want to live here maybe at least part of the year. So about eight or nine years ago, I, I did my first extended trip down here for three months and liked it. It worked well. So for a few years, I did six months in the winter in, in Puerto Vallarta, six months in Seattle. And then I just basically closed down my private practice. I do everything online and I've uh, bought a house here in Vallarta about two years ago and married a Mexican woman about it. It'd be two years ago, November. So this is home. This is where we live. That's great. Yeah. And I, I used to live in Vancouver, so I feel you on the, on the rain. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, two beautiful cities. Absolutely. Yeah, they've got their share of rain. Yeah. Yeah. The winter can get pretty long. So I know you've answered this question a million different times, but I think it's worthwhile just to sort of lay the foundation for the rest of our conversation. People hear the word nice guy. They think, oh, what's wrong with being a nice guy? I'm a nice guy. My husband's a nice guy, whatever. What is your working definition of nice guy? Okay, that's a good place to start, even if I've started there a million times. <laughs> um, basically, a, a nice guy, as I define it, and this would apply to nice girls as well. And, and uh, um, as you mentioned, I've written a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy. And a lot of women, it's directed at men, but a lot of women tell me they could really relate to it as well. They see their own patterns in their life. And I frequently said there were nice girls, nice women out there a long time before nice guys came along. But a nice guy, and I'll just use the, the, the term, the, the, that gender term, is a guy, there's a person who doesn't believe they are okay just as they are. Um, this is a, a, a deep internalized emotional belief that usually began very early in childhood, uh, like maybe you know a few weeks, few months, few years old, beginning to internalize beliefs about themselves in the world. And this belief is that I'm not okay just as I am. And so therefore I have to become what I think other people want me to be in order to get love and get my needs met. And I need to hide those things about me that I believe other people might react negatively to. And for nice guys, the things that most often get hidden is their needs, which that's big, and their sexuality, which is big as well. So basically a nice guy, nice girl is a person walking the planet trying to get external validation, approval, love, get their needs met by pleasing others and uh, avoiding displeasing others. And could you talk a little about this concept? I I love the phrasing, covert contracts, and why that's so important. Um, It is important. And a lot of people tell me that the, the, the number one thing, the big aha they got out of my book, is this idea of covert contracts. And I'm going to spell it out even more clearly than I did in the book uh, when I wrote it 20 years ago. Nice guys tend to operate by three covert contracts. 
And they are all if-then paradigms, and none of them work for a number of reasons, uh, primarily because they are covert, i.e., the nice guy himself maybe isn't even aware that he has these paradigms, and nobody else is aware of the contract as well. So it often catches him by surprise. But the three basic covert contracts of the nice guy syndrome, covert contract number one, if I'm a good guy, if I'm a good person, then I will be liked and loved. And, and this often then extends to romantic relationship. If I'm a good guy, the person I'm attracted to and desire will be attracted to me and desire me as well. So that's covert contract number one. Um, and of course, it doesn't work. Just being a decent human being doesn't make you attractive to everybody and doesn't make everybody like you. Uh, the example that I often give people is the, the example they say Jesus was perfect and they still nailed, nailed him on a cross. Not everybody <laughs> liked him. Okay, that's going to happen. So covert contract number two, if I meet everybody else's needs without them having to ask, then they will meet my needs without me having to ask. Now, again, this doesn't work at all. Number one, the nice guy's trying to give to everybody else and often gives to other people what he needs, actually, either in the terms of he needs appreciation or approval or recognition, or he hopes they will give back in the same way. Um, unfortunately, nobody else knows about the contract. They don't know that everything the nice guy give has gives has strings attached and that they're expected to give back in some way. And usually they don't know how the, it is they're supposed to be giving to the nice guy because he's usually not very clear about what his own needs are. And to make it even worse, nice guys tend to be terrible receivers. They're not good at letting people give to them, even while they're walking around feeling resentful that they do all the giving and nobody ever gives back. When people try to give, they make it very hard because nice guys tend to have guilt or shame about receiving or think they're, you know, they're going to owe somebody something or they believe they're bad for even having needs. So while they're giving to get, they're terrible at getting. And this is where a lot of the not-so-nice behaviors of nice guys can arise, is while they're giving to get and people aren't giving back in the way they perceive they should, especially in the form of appreciation. The nice guy often starts building up resentment, kind of little bricks of, of being pissed off that build up over time that tend to get expressed in either passive-aggressive behavior or something my uh, second wife called victim pukes, where you let it store up, store up, store up, and then you just blow up and say all kinds of nasty things. And, and as she used to ask me, how, how long have you been upset about this? I don't know, six months or so. And she said, it didn't cross your mind. Maybe you should just tell me you were upset. Uh, no, I didn't even think about that. So that's covert contract number two. If I, if I give to everybody else and meet their needs, they will give to me to meet my needs. Covert contract number three is uh, if I do everything right, then I will have a smooth, problem-free life. And of course, nobody does everything right. We're all flawed, imperfect human beings bumbling our way through life. And life is not smooth or problem-free, uh, especially in relationship where nice guys expect life to be the most smooth and problem-free. So those are the three covert contracts. This, this is the roadmap that the nice guys are unconsciously using um, to, to get their needs met, to find their way in the world, to get love, to, to, to have success, to, uh, to, to just get things done. And unfortunately, this roadmap, this paradigm, 
was internalized at a really, really young age before the, the nice guy as a child had any kind of accurate view of the world and before their mind was fully developed in a way that they could actually make reasoned decisions about how the world works. I want to talk about some of the baby steps for recovery in a moment, but one of the main reasons I found your book so engaging and one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you today is I really respect the fact that you don't only talk the talk, like you walk the walk and you've been very open about your own personal uh, journey in terms of sort of letting go of this nice guy um, mentality, you know, taking ownership for what you want and turning your life around. And I've listened to a bunch of your, your interviews. You really get very personal in those interviews. And, and you know, I, I respect and appreciate that. But if you could talk a little bit about how the book came up and, and you know, how, how did you realize that, that you were this, quote unquote, nice guy? Okay. Uh, and, and you're right. Uh, I, I do try to be very open about my process. And I am a recovering nice guy. That, that is how the book came to be. But I'll tell a little bit more about that. And as I told you before we began the interview, you can ask me anything you want. I, 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 I've got nothing hidden. Um, in my various podcasts and interviews, I, I, I'm okay with putting it all out there. <clears throat> in fact, one of the things that people will often say after attending one of my workshops, they'll say, you're so authentic, you're so real, you're so open. And, and I would not have been accused of that or praised for that 30 years ago. Uh, I, I was completely closed off and hidden and guarded and presenting the best front that I could give. Um, but I've made my share of mistakes in life and, and those mistakes are what have helped me, um, learn and grow. And that's what, you know, I've got a PhD in marriage and family therapy, but I promise you the mistakes I've made in life probably make me a better helper than, than the PhD ever did. But in terms of the book, what happened, um, is again a reference back to my second wife that's what i was married to her when i wrote the book um uh, I, I was acting out in inappropriate ways and and she she said I, i'm not going to put up with this she says i'd, I'd rather be married to a jerk because at least i know a jerk's going to treat me bad all the time she said you treat me so well uh, and everybody thinks you're such a great guy but then you turn around and do things that are so hurtful to me and you need to go get help and so I went to get help actually with the idea of trying to figure out why me being such a nice guy didn't make my wife treat me better and didn't make her appreciate me and didn't make her want to have sex with me more and didn't make her happy. Um, she was, you know, I said she was unhappy all the time and, and I could never satisfy her. And so I went to therapy. Luckily, you know, I joined a 12 step group. I got a therapist. Luckily, um, they helped start pointing me in a better direction than trying to figure out why me being a nice guy didn't make my wife a better wife and didn't make her appreciate me. I started learning about boundaries. I started learning to, um, to trust and reveal me to safe people. Uh, I started learning about making my needs a priority, uh, getting my needs met in a very healthy way. Just started learning a lot more healthy behaviors that, you know, all adults need to have. And as I was doing this process and probably maybe a couple of years into it, and I joined a men's group. Um, I started noticing in my practice as a marriage counselor that 
a lot of the guys coming to work with me with their wives or girlfriends were saying the exact same things I'd been saying. I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. How come she doesn't appreciate me? I treat her better than her ex. I'm raising her kids. Why is she angry all the time? Why is it never good enough? When's it going to be my turn? How come she never wants to have sex anymore? And I thought, I can finish their sentences for them. So I, I invited a handful of guys to join me in my first No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group, uh, probably now about 20 years ago. And we met every other week. And on Wednesdays, I just started writing. And I would write stuff to give to these guys to read. Just about things I was discovering about perhaps the origins of the nice guy syndrome, how we became nice guys, our world paradigm, um, why being a nice guy doesn't work, more effective ways of, of living. And I just kept writing. And the guys and their girlfriends and wives kept saying, you should write a book. You should go on Oprah. So over a period of about six to seven years, I just kept writing. And then um, then over a period of about three years trying to find a publisher, finally uh, the book got published about about 17 years ago as an e-book and then in hardcover about 15 years ago. Um, so that's how the book came about. It was just my own work personally and my work professionally with other nice guys that it, it was such a wake-up call to realize, hey, I'm not the only person out there with this roadmap, with this paradigm, with these covert contracts, just thinking if I treat everybody well, if I'm a good guy, if I follow the rules, then I'll be liked, loved, and get my needs met and have a good life. Um, there are a lot of other men with those core belief systems. And so that's how the book came to be. And uh, just as an aside, the, the book was published, as I said, in hardcover about 15 years ago. And a number of publishers told me, yeah, we like the book a lot, but our marketing department says men won't buy a self-help book. Um, 15 years later, my royalty checks keep getting bigger every year. So the, the, the book is, is selling more and more. In fact, I just noticed uh, on Amazon the other day, it's the number two rated book in the dating category on Amazon. And it's not even about dating per se. Um, I was married when I wrote it. So it, it continues to do well. So it, it, it is striking a nerve for a lot of men and a lot of women out there. Yeah, on that note, I, I know I'm jumping around a little bit now, but I was going to ask you something. And I realize we're, we're wading into a potential minefield here. I hope not. Oh, baby, bring it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned like, I was wondering, like, are nice guys getting nicer? You know, you mentioned that your royalty sales keep going up. And surely that's owing in, in part to guys like me who just, you know, love the, the book and want to spread the word, um, podcasts and, you know, whatever. But also I, I, I'm looking at the Me Too movement, for example. And I'm worried about the current generation of men who think, who, who maybe they're going to be inspired to sort of double down on their niceness. You know what I mean? Because yeah. we live in this politically correct era and there's so much confusion around what's appropriate in dating and relationships and guys watching the current cultural debates that we're seeing with these assholes and jerks in the media and they think, well, I don't want to be that guy. You know, I'm going to go to the opposite yeah. extreme. I'm going to be extra nice. I mean, what are your thoughts on on nice guys in the context of Me Too? Do you think that that nice guys are getting nicer in some ways? Yeah, um, I, I agree. In fact, uh, just next week, I'm giving a presentation at a workshop or conference, and it's titled Boldness in the Era of Me Too. Mm. And, um, you know, the, the Me Too movement is a lot like the, the origins of the women's liberation movement that that sprang out when I was uh, a teenager, late teenager, early adult, back in the late 60s to early 70s. And um, there's... 
there's two components to both that early feminist movement and the Me Too movement in terms of how I see it. One is a very legitimate component that says nobody should be abused, mistreated, uh, a victim of, of, you know, people that have more power than them. Nobody, men or women, should be mistreated. Um, And historically, women have been very abused and mistreated. I mean, I don't know how accurate the statistics is, but I've heard for years that one in three women will be abused in some way, sexually abused by the age 18. And and then... um, you can talk to almost any adult woman and ask her about sexual violations in her life, and she'll have stories to tell. Now, we men get violated in many ways as well. So um, there, there is a legitimate theme here that nobody should be violated and, and that there needs to be a voice for people who've been violated. And, and as is true for both men and women when they're abused or violated, especially at a young age, is they tend to not tell anybody. When people say, well, why didn't they bring it up when it happened? Um, you know, my, my wife um, was, was raped at age, when she was 12, um, and, and she, it was by her best friend's brother and his cousin. And she, and she told her best friend and, and her mother, and they said, don't tell anybody because, you know, we don't want our son to get in trouble. She never told another soul till she told me, you know, you're into our marriage. Every woman I've ever been with has had violation stories to tell, and many of them did not tell anybody when it happened. That's very common because of the shame, the anxiety, the fear of not being believed. So that is an underpinning part of both the early feminist movement and the Me Too movement. Now, uh, there's another component that is more reactionary that tends to create a reactionary response. And the more reactionary part is labeling all men as bad, labeling everything men, men do as a toxic masculine. I remember hearing when I was a teenager, uh, every man's a rapist, an erection's a sign of aggression, you know, things like that. It, and that had an impact on me. It, it, it influenced, and my mother was already raising me be, to be different from my father. She told me that as a young, a young boy. Now, as an adult, she apologized for that. She said, that was not a good thing to do or to tell you, to try to get you to be different from your father. But I was trying to be different from other bad men. So those angry messages of feminism in the 60s and 70s resonated with me. And yes, I think a a lot more boys than even, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, are being raised in predominantly um, female households. A lot of boys don't have connection with their dads. If they do, you know, they're, they're very disconnected. They're not close. They're not safe. They're not trusting. And of course, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see um, young men don't have any form of masculine initiation anymore, where, where men lead the young boys in, into an initiation where they can learn to trust men, connect with men, build teams with men, face scary things in life, which for most of us guys, women, is one of those scary categories. They scare us. Um, and, they, and they, you know, they boggle our minds. We don't understand why they are the, the way they are. But we don't have that initiation. And now with with the, the Me Too movement, while there's a lot of legitimate voices in it, there's also that fringe, angry, reactionary part that's labeling, you know, all men as, as bad. And it, you're right, is that now, like all over again, we've got this this doubling down on, on probably young Highly influential males who wanted to be approved of by women 
are trying to avoid doing anything that might upset a woman. And unfortunately, um, as I've found as I've lived through life, trying to avoid upsetting a woman, number one, doesn't work because they're probably still going to get upset at you anyway. Um, but number two, it makes you so passive and pleasing, it, it gives the woman nothing actually to be attracted to. Um, there, there's no boldness there, no fierceness, no direction, no passion. And so it actually works against men and boys as we try to get more passive and pleasing. So to answer your question, yes, my book sales will probably keep going up for a long time because I worldwide, this isn't just in the US or North America, this is a worldwide phenomena of, of just men getting more passive with no real direction of how do I be bold, how do I be fierce, how do I have passion, and how do I have respect for women in the world and, 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 and to, to interact with women in the world with great power and great respect. And um, fortunately, there, there are a lot of men's coaches and there's a lot of podcasts and a lot of lot. There, there are, are men and women out there leading and providing positive messages that help men and young boys during the, this period of confusion. And I, I actually think we are in um, some powerful periods of revolution. And I actually view Me Too as kind of a wake-up call that is creating a new revolution in which I believe women and, and all vulnerable people will, will be safer and, and, and feel more protected and respected in the world, and in which I think men where we went to one extreme by getting passive and, and becoming doormats, I think now we will actually not just swing back the other way, but go to another stage of learning to be more conscious and more authentic and, and, and to show up and lead and be real in ways that, that are just permeated with love and integrity. So I, I really think we're, we're in the midst of a, a very amazing revolution that while we're struggling with it right now, I think some really good stuff's going to come out of it. I love your optimism. Yeah, I'm glad I asked you the question. That that's uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. Coming back to the the book for a moment, and and I'll I'll confess to you that I'd been aware of your book for a long time, and I got interested in in men's work and and personal development over a decade ago, and your book has been on my radar for a long time. But I think my experience is probably common because I, I saw the title and, and I got the gist of it. And I thought, well, I'm not a nice guy. You know, I, I, I don't need this book. I, you know, I do OK with women and, and I'm, you know, successful and, and, and all these things. I had these justifications. And then finally I read it and I saw way more of myself in that book than, than I was prepared for. Uh, I'm sure you hear that a lot. Um, so anyone, first off, I'll just say anyone listening to this who's intrigued, I strongly, strongly recommend uh, you read the book, even for guys who are kind of on the fence or who maybe are a little resistant to that label of nice guy. I, I, I got a tremendous amount out of it and I'd strongly recommend it. But on that note, if you could recommend just, you know, one or two of the baby steps you know, because I don't want to leave the guys hang hanging here. Some of the baby steps are the first most important steps for recovering from this nice guy syndrome. Um, number one, and, and, I, and I state this in the book, excuse me, don't try to do this alone. Um, the nice guy paradigm did not evolve in isolation. It, it evolved in, your, in, in a young boy's a young child's relationship with people and recovery from nice guy syndrome requires people. And I, and I, I say in the book, I've been preaching it for years, 
go find safe people. And and the process, the to me, the very beginning of this process, it's at least two or threefold, but the, primarily is to begin to reveal yourself to safe people. Now, this could be a coach, a therapist, a men's group, a 12 steps group, a, a minister, a rabbi, perhaps your best friend. I, I don't recommend this be girlfriend, boyfriend, family member, because number one, we, we have an investment in them wanting to see us as a good person. And we're not going to start revealing our shadow side, our dark secrets, our, our hidden impulses. Uh, we're not going to, um, cause we don't want to them to be, you know, disgusted and leave us. So go find safe people to do this with. And, and this is what I started out doing in a 12 step group. I went to a 12 step group for sex addicts and quickly found out I wasn't a sex addict. I wasn't having enough sex to be a sex addict, but <laughs> it, it was all guys and and it was amazingly powerful because these these were men that were really struggling with some dark stuff in their lives and it's like here i was i grew up in a fundamental uh christian church uh, i have two degrees in religion i'd been a minister for eight years um i i was you know raised in a home environment trying to be different from my father like i said i was reacting to the angry feminism of the 60s and 70s i was trying to be a picture perfect guy you know but i wasn't i i had lots of uh things that i i hid that you know i i I, I never told the whole truth about anything. If I thought it might upset anybody, I never looked at my dark side, my impulses. And in this group, I just thought, man, this is cool. I can just go talk about anything and everything. I don't have to hold anything back. And um, this group like met at like 630 in the morning once a week. And I, I got excited about going to this group because it was so emotionally liberating to just start putting it all out there and not having to invest all the emotional energy to keep everything hidden or repressed or remember what story I told when. So find safe people and start putting you out there and what you'll find. And, and like I said, this goes to the core of the nice guy syndrome. What you find is in these safe environments, people don't react negatively. They don't go, what? You think that? You did that? You want to do what? You're, you're a pervert. You're, you're, you're bad. You're evil. You're sinful. I don't want to be around you. That's, that's not the response you get. If you do, those aren't safe people. That's not the right place to go. But what happens is you start either people just listen with respect and don't have any big reaction at all. And you go, huh? Nobody looks disgusted after I shared that. Maybe they said, thanks for sharing, Robert. Um, or, or maybe they, you know, like a therapist might say, well, let's look at that. Let's explore that. Let's see what that means without judgment. And you start realizing all these self-judgments I've had of these things that, that make me bad. And the reason why I got to become what I think other people want me to be and all the things I need to hide about me, that was all just a story. It, it was a myth that I didn't inaccurately internalized and okay, I'm not perfect. I'm flawed. I make mistakes. I, I stumble. Um, but I'm still lovable. People still like me. They don't think I'm a terrible person just because I I'm real and not perfect. So number one is go find safe, safe people and start revealing yourself. Now in that process, hopefully you'll also start getting feedback about maybe some more healthy or productive ways to, to get your needs met and live your life. And, and maybe a simple term is to, you know, new tools to put in your toolbox in terms of relationship or work and career or self-care or meeting your needs. So go find, 
go find safe people and start revealing yourself. Start being honest, telling the whole truth in these environments. Start releasing that toxic shame that makes you believe you're a bad person. Hopefully you'll start finding tools to start soothing your anxiety so you can do things that frighten you that you avoid doing. Uh, hopefully you can learn to connect with other people in a more effective, uh, intimate way. And another powerful piece of this is learning to make your needs a priority, learning to ask for what you want, learning to surround yourself with people and systems and professionals and organizations that can help you fill your bucket and get your needs met so that you now have an overflow that you can give generous to other people without those strings attached. So I, I know I kind of packaged a whole bunch of stuff together, but that 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 would be the suggestions I would start. Oh, and I, I'd also throw in there, um, whatever your gender, male or female, go work at developing relationships with members of the same sex. Yeah. Guys need a tribe. We need to connect with men. Women, I don't know if women call it a tribe or not, but they need their tribe. They, they need their sisters. They, they need to be able to connect and go deep with, with other women as well. So that, that's really essential because unfortunately, like I said, I've been, I've been a marriage therapist for 30 years. One of the biggest drains and, and stressors in a relationship is, is the, the husband and wife, men and women, or even if they're same sex, is thinking this person should meet all of my needs. And they can't. Um, and, and we need other people in our, our life to help meet our needs in various ways, and especially good same sex friends. Yeah, I'm, I always think of Esther Perel, who wrote Mating Captivity. She has this great line where she talks about you know, nowadays we expect one person to, to provide us with all of the intimacy and human connections that an entire village used to provide. How true is that, right? You encounter so many yeah. couples who are so isolated and their entire social lives are intertwined. And yeah, that can, be, that can be so destructive. And I couldn't, I mean, I really want to hammer this point home because I think it's so crucial. And I'm a man who loves women, but I often say there's something special that happens when you're in a group of just men like you yeah. say, safe people, there's just, it, it speaks to us. And I like the, the fact that you use the word tribe because it speaks to me on this very deep primal level that I think this has mm -hmm. to be some byproduct of evolution or something like this. It's very, very deep and deeply nourishing. I think it, it's so crucial. Yeah. Absolutely. As long as we're talking about recovery, I, want, I, was, I was thinking about this today. Is there anything that wives and girlfriends can do to support their nice guy, husband or boyfriend. And I asked that, I realized that the, the, the burden is on the nice guy to, to sort his shit out, so to yeah. speak. But is there anything that, you know, women listening to this who suspect that they might have a nice guy for a boyfriend or husband, is there anything you would tell them? Yeah. The, the a woman in this situation is in kind of a, um, I don't know, vulnerable or precarious or <laughs> it's sticky, tricky, right? Uh, yeah, it's tricky. Cause, Cause here's the thing. Um, you mentioned Esther Perel's book. That's one of my favorite books. I mean, while I was listening to it, I think this is the this is a, the book I wanted to write. It's an amazing book. Uh, another great book I recommend um, is by David Data called "The Way of the Superior Man." Yeah. And I know a lot a lot of the coaches, men's coaches I talk to, tell me that the two books they most often recommend uh, is David Data's book and my book. Um, they're very different, but they go together well. Um, and I heard Data say it at a workshop one time, he says, if a woman tells a man what to do and he does it, she has now forced him into his feminine, 
which now polarity wise, she is in her masculine. She's the one leading and setting the tone. And probably that's not what she wants to happen. You know, what's happening is, is the, her, the, her man is already in his feminine enough seeking validation, seeking uh, her approval and wanting to please her. And that's probably what is so frustrating to her. And then she can't trust him. She can't depend on him. She, he won't keep his word. He won't follow through. He won't set the tone and lead. So it's a sticky situation for the woman to say, you're a nice guy. I want you to man up and quit being such a nice guy. And then if he says, yes, dear, I'll try and not be such a nice guy. He's <laughs> in that pleasing mode of trying <laughs> to get her approval. And, and I know I was in that space when I started doing my work, like I said, during my second marriage. And for, for a period of time, it, it, it really kind of was for her. You know, she said, you got to go get therapy or I'm not going to stay with you. And I did. And, and then I kept wanting her validation that I was changing and that I was working hard. And like about four or five years into this, you know, I, I couldn't get her to validate that, you know, and she still kept, kept poking at me and, you know, saying, you're this, you're that, you're, you know, I can't trust you, this and that. And I finally reached a point where I realized I, I had the wrong working paradigm. I had to let go of this thing of trying to do this to get her approval and get her to check off the boxes that I'd done my recovery right and just realize this, this has got to be for me. It's got to be for me. And if the benefit is she feels safer and we have a healthier relationship, great. But it's got to be for me. And I, I even remember at one point where where she was um, picking at me and telling me all the things that, you know, where I, I was still had it wrong and needed to work on and change. And, and I remember I, I just stopped and looked at her. I said, listen, I like me. I'm really happy with me. I'm happy with how I am and the work I'm doing in my life and how I live my life. I said, if you're not, there's the door. But I'm not going to listen anymore to you telling me how I'm not good enough or I need to be different or I need to change. And and she quit. And it's kind of like I needed to take that stand that, that I didn't need her direction or validation. It doesn't mean that the woman in our life can't be an oracle. And they will be in many ways. They'll let us know when we're not present, when we're not conscious, when we're not leading. They'll let us know because they're usually not particularly happy. Now, that doesn't mean we got to figure out how to make them happy, but we can use it as information that we do need to man up, that we do need to get more present, we do need to get more conscious, we do need to get, get more passion, we do need to lead uh, more clearly. So they, they can be an oracle for us. So to come back to your question, what I tell women is the best thing you could do is just give your man a copy of the book. Um, a lot of women are afraid that the guy will be offended, but I've had lots, I've had Goodles, oodles of men tell me they found out about my book because either a wife or girlfriend or just as often an ex gave them a copy of the book and they read it and, and they believe me, they were not offended that the woman gave them the book. Now, if I'd say to a woman, if you're still in a relationship with a man who has nice guy tendencies, um, besides giving them the book or pointing them in the direction of my website, a couple of things they can do is is praise the hell out of the things the guy does that that they value. And when he does lead, when you know, don't praise in a phony way, but but show gratitude and appreciation when he does lead, when he does tell a difficult truth, when he does set a boundary, when he does show up in a very conscious way. Find ways either with a hug, a kiss, and I love you, or you know, I respect you so much, you turn me on so much. Re reinforce that behavior. 
Uh, and a lot of times in, in marriages, we forget we got to reinforce the behavior we want to occur more often. We often actually give negative attention. We give attention to negative behavior rather than paying attention to positive behavior. So, so reinforce those behaviors that that you see in your man when he is manning up and, and showing up with more consciousness and integrity and love. And a second thing to, I suggest to women is that when you complain or tell a man what to do, He'll just, number one, feel defective or uh, he may have a shame attack. He may defend himself. He may go into fix-it mode. Uh, he may just get passive-aggressive and not get around doing it. But I found that if a woman can say to a man, I've got a problem. Can you help me? Can you help me with my problem? And then even if the problem is him, right? And, and it's some, or something he's doing. If a woman can say, I have a problem, can you help me? Well, we men are problem solving machines, right? It turns oh, us on. Got a, it turns us on. And for our woman to say, I've got a problem. Um, I, when you tell me you're going to be home at six and then you don't show up till 645 and you don't let me know, I actually get worried about you. I get stressed. And when, when you show up, I know sometimes it looks like I'm just pissed off at you. And, and sometimes I am. But the truth is, I, I just I, I don't know what's up. And that 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 creates anxiety for me. Can, can you help me with my problem? Is there something that, that you and I can work out to where you'll let me know that you're not going to be there in time? Or if you know you're not going to be there at six, you don't tell me you're going to be there at six. Uh, can can you think of anything that can help me with this problem? And then the guy's going to go, you're right. If I tell you I'm going to be home at six, I need to be at six. And if I can't, if something comes up, I need to let you know. We usually, the answer is usually really simple. But if we're not put on the defensive, um, we can usually come up with it pretty quickly. And we go, oh, you're right. I have been... I haven't been considerate. I haven't been acting with integrity. I have created a problem for somebody I love. And we, then we usually show up in a much more conscious way. So oh, those are you know, kind of the, the best suggestions I've got for, for women that recognize a man in their life. Um, how about just recognize they have a man in their life, whether he's a nice guy or not. Those, those are pretty decent tools to, to increase the odds of getting what you want with the man in your life. Absolutely. And, and again, I just want to hammer home, you know, appreciation and praise and simply noticing those things. I find myself sometimes I can get a little sneaky in relationships like, you know, sweetheart, I love when you gave me that massage. That was so great. You know, I, that, <laughs> I really appreciated that. Right. It's like yeah. it's, it's so true. It's like notice those things, really make an effort to appreciate them. And, and you, you drastically yeah. increase your odds of, um, you know, getting more of that in, in the future. So, so, so important. I have to ask, you, you are literally the guy who wrote the book about, you know, recovering from nice guy syndrome. All these years later, do you still have moments where you revert to your nice guy, your former nice guy tendencies? <laughs> All the time. Um, sad to say. Um, yeah, and that's two, two things that really illustrate that question. Um, as, a, as I mentioned, I got married almost two years ago. Um, this is my third wife. I keep bumbling. My, you know, I've got a PhD in marriage and family therapy, but like everybody else, I bumble my way through. Um, and unfortunately, I, I have these, these nice guy patterns really deep uh, in my you know, core emotional system um, where uh, I want to please. I want to make people happy. I want to fix problems. And um, uh, in a few months into my marriage, I, 
I, I was noticing these nice guy traits were coming up. My wife has her own baggage from her past that involved her uh, abuses and neglects and abandonment, which most of us have. Um, she would project those things onto me that I was doing something or I was going to abandon her or, you know, I was going to. Uh, be unfaithful to her. And I'd get triggered because as a nice guy, I think if I haven't done anything wrong, I shouldn't be falsely accused. When I got triggered, I didn't like my reaction to that. And, um, and it was all just nice guy stuff. You know, how dare she think these bad things of me when I haven't done anything wrong. She should appreciate all the things I do right. All, all nice guy stuff. And so about six months into my marriage, about it was over a year ago, um, I reached out and got a men's coach, uh, who came highly recommended to me. Partly, uh, I reached out to him because he does a men's program, somebody told me about, that runs for about nine months, a pretty intensive men's leadership program. So I started working with him again. And, and it's interesting because he said, um, he said, Robert, you know, uh, I appreciate that you reached out to me to, to start coaching with me, but y your book is on my reading list. I recommend it to everybody that I work with, every man I work with, and you're reaching out to me. And I said, I, I've, I still got work to do. I'm still working on me. And, and being in this new relationship just triggered all that really old core stuff. And now, like I said, about a year ago, started working with this men's coach and then joined a men's group that he leads this last March. And, and, and man, I just, just being in that men's group has just been just such great therapy. And, and I've been in men's groups in the past and I just realized I just, as we talked about, I need that deep connection with men. And, and it was kind of interesting this last November uh, I went back to New York to uh, re-record the audio version of No More Mr. Nice Guy. The original audio book was read by uh, a professional voice. And several years later, people said, you know, Robert, how come you didn't read the book? And I said, well, they didn't actually give me the option. They, they hired somebody else. So I told my agent, let's cancel that contract. It had long been, you know, we fulfilled it. Let's, let's get a new contract in which I read it and we get worldwide distribution. And so two weeks later, the same company wrote me back and said, you know, we want to give, we want to keep your book. We want you to read it. You know, the, you and the book are, you know, inseparable. We want you to come back to New York. They gave me a, a, a big advance to come reread the book that was already out there. But the, the part was for, so for three days, I'm reading my book, um, out loud and which was a challenge in itself. But as I'm reading it, it's kind of like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, I forgot. Oh yeah. I wrote that. Oh yeah. I need to remember that. Oh yeah. That's coming up again. And it was like, it was just like, I, it was almost like I was reading the book for the first time. Like a, a lot of the people that read it for the first time. Oh, that's me. That's me. That's me. So, you know, I expect I'll work on this stuff till the day I die. I've, I've been really excited over the last several months that it's like I've, I've, I've gone to a deeper level and I've cleared up new layers of this stuff. And my marriage with my wife just seems to be reaching new heights all the time. And, and she just, she's working on herself and we're growing together. So the fact that my nice guy stuff still bubbled up you know, turned out to be this gift and that it got me working on me again, going deeper. It got my wife working on all the trauma she's brought from her past and we've gotten closer. Um, I'm, 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 I got, I'm parenting again. I got 11 and 13 year old stepkids. I'm watching them blossom as my wife and I just keep doing better and better. So yeah, I, I let's just keep working on this stuff till the day we die. Absolutely. You mentioned David Data and the way of the superior man. 
One of my favorite chapters in that book is called Stop Hoping for a Completion of Anything in Life, right? And yeah. that's such a masculine pull that, or, or trait that, that desire, you know, one day I'll have enough money and I can quit. One day my wife will be easy. One day I'll totally, <laughs> you know, I'll have the six pack and that'll, that'll be the end of that. One day, you know, we, we want that all the time and it never ends, right? It never ends. Yeah. And that, that's a good thing because how boring would it be? If, you know, we finally, we hit the finish line someday, right? Like I find that very inspiring. Yeah. You're in your 60s and you're still trying to figure this shit out, right? And you're owning it. You know, like that, that's, that's great. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm having fun with it. And, and again, like I said, go get, don't try to do it alone. The, the coach I work with, uh, as mentioned, his name is John Wineland and he's, he's been a student of David Data's for 10 years. And, and it's like, he's just taken us deeper and deeper. And, and so, yeah, it's the stuff we bump into in life that isn't working well, or that triggers us. That's where our shadow is. That's where our work lies. That's where we need to get help and assistance to go dig into. And as long as we're alive, um, you know, we're going to keep bumping into stuff. And I, I'll just keep saying the same thing to me, to you, to all your listeners. Don't try to do this alone. There's people out there that this is just easier if we have a guide and a tribe to help us. Absolutely. And you mentioned people recommending uh, your book to, to their clients. So very briefly, I, this is one question I have to get to today. Um, one of my main interests is jealousy, jealousy in relationships. And a lot of people write to me about their experiences of jealousy in relationships, a lot of guys. And several years ago, I started recommending your book because I saw nice guy tendencies in so many of these male jealousy sufferers. Has that come right. up for you in your, in your practice, in, in your um, therapy practice? Uh, do you see a connection between jealousy and relationships and this nice guy syndrome? Because I certainly do. Uh, yeah. Let me kind of, kind of spread that out a little bit. Um, and, 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 and I'm kind of talking now in a language more of, of kind of the David Data and John Wyden language, a masculine feminine. I believe jealousy is a feminine trait. Um, and, and I believe it's actually a, um, it's, it can serve a purpose, but at the same time, I think it's actually a relatively new trait in human existence. And I'll tell you why, uh, it goes back to our, the tribal part. Um, the feminine is, is data and Wineland and, and describe it. The feminine in us in, in men and women is what craves connection in the flow of love. And the masculine is what seeks mastery and basis. So basically the ma masculine does feminine is done too. feminine is receptive. Masculine's doing, and we all have a masculine feminine side. And because it's the feminine side that craves the, the connection and flow of love, it's the feminine side in us that fears that going away or fears, you know, we won't be good enough. And so because nice guys often spend a lot of their emotional time in their feminine side of, of seeking approval, seeching validation. Those are all feminine traits. When the masculine is, is self-validating by taking action, especially by taking the action that is challenging or frightening or, you know, that, that we've been putting off and avoiding doing. So this feminine trait, and, and here's what's strange, or I don't know, strange, but like in nice guys where I tend to see it, and you know it's not a functional um, response because I tend to see the jealousy in nice guys in, in two manifestations. One is being jealous about a woman's past. 
is like, you know, oh, how many men has she been with? Or, you know, did, were they better than him? Do you know, but she's not with those guys. And, and I tell guys, for example, I'm, I'm a little crass here. Um, you know, it, for me, I, I like getting with a woman, for example, that, that knows how to give a good blow job. <laughs> and, and it, and it, and for, for that to be true, She's had some practice before she met me. And you know what? I'm grateful for all the practice she had before she got to be with me. It's not like, oh, how many men has she done this to before me? You know, you know, am I just one of, you know, that and that is really a that kind of jealousy does not serve anybody well of focusing on a person's past and then feeling inadequate or that it's a, a pre precursor of something down the road. The other way that I see the, the jealousy tend to show up um, is in the nice guy just projecting that the woman is going to cheat on him. I mean, jealousy would be a healthy response if your, your partner is doing things where their sexual energy is going outside, I call it the container that the two of you have created, especially if you're in a monogamous relationship, that, that you, you have at least an implicit but hopefully explicit agreement that you both keep all of your sexual energy within the container. And I'm, I'm, I'm really rigid about what that means. That means no fantasy, no porn, no flirting, no, you know, clandestine conversations, no, no secrets on Facebook. Everything stays in the container with your partner. Um, number one, the, then we don't have to worry about what's going on outside. We don't have to have anything hidden. We don't have to have secrets, but then the energy inside the container becomes really a pressure cooker. It really gets heated and exciting inside when everything is kept inside. When sexual energy seeps out of the container, um, it, 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 it robs the relationship of a of sexual passion, uh, of a nastiness, of an intensity. So I believe that the men and women should require their partners say, I want you to keep all of your sexual energy within the container. Now, to me, that's a little different than jealousy. Jealousy is probably a response when you see your partner is putting it out and refuse to address it or deal with it. And personally, I would not live with a person who was sending sexual energy outside the container if we have an agreement of a monogamous relationship. Uh, I, I would say, hey, no, keep it in here. And if they didn't, that's not jealousy. That's a boundary. And if they didn't, I, I would say, if you can't do it this way, you don't get to be with me. Okay. And I would lead in that way now, but the jealousy is usually where maybe the person is sending a lot of energy, but the person is not willing to set a boundary. The partner's not willing to set a boundary saying this has to stop. Um, or they're projecting all the abandonments of their past on that person and assuming they're going to abandon them as well. And the, the thing that I've found is that every person who has big abandonment issues in which they project onto their partner is going to get abandoned. And almost always their partner is going to cheat on them. There is some kind of energetic manifestation when you're living day to day, expecting your partner to cheat on you. I almost guarantee they will. And, and, you know, I can't say it's because of this, this or that. I, I don't know. I can nail it down, but it, whatever we live in fear of is probably going to happen. Now, my, my belief in theory is, is we go back more than 10,000 years back to our tribal times that, where we existed for about a million and a half years. My belief is, is there's pretty good evidence that um, sex was communal. 
within the tribe. And Mother Nature is it's the best model for Mother Nature. A lot of penises went into you know a lot of vaginas, and then a lot of men took ownership of, of the offspring and provided and protected. I think it worked pretty well. There's pretty good evidence that, that that's how it existed. It's only been about 10,000 years that we've had more of an ownership model of partners and of sex uh, as we started owning land and trees and cows and dogs and, and wives and children where we're kind of in the patriarchy this there is built around this ownership model. That's where I think jealousy came in. I, I doubt it existed before then. There might have been envy that, you know, oh, I, I want... You know, I, I want what that person wants, but it's not like you're being deprived of anything because it was so communal in the tribe. Um, so I think jealousy is kind of a, a later thing directly tied in to the ownership model of relationship. And um, now one one other note about jealousy. It is also a powerful aphrodisiac. Um, and, and if you, you can you can actually play with it in conscious ways within that container of uh, um, my wife has extreme fears of being cheated on, but she can tell me the nastiest stories of me having sex with other people while she and I are being sexual because it's within the container. So you can actually play with that uh, and, and face your fears and increase sexual intensity um, if you want to use it very consciously. But it can be really toxic when it's being unconsciously projected. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Have you, have you read Sex at Dawn by Chris Ryan? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, 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 I, I think that that fills in a lot of blanks that a lot of other uh, evolutionary psychology and social biology misses the mark. I think a lot of the other um, writers tend to look at the things humans do and then find explanations of them based on how we've been for 10,000 years rather than how we were for a million and a half years and even longer counting you know, what we were before we evolved into humans. Uh, I think tribes existed because they were communal. And um, so, yeah, this, this thing of ownership of, of, of partners and sex is really, really recent in our human evolution. And, and even a romantic view of love probably has only been around for about 200 years. It was economic before that. And, and as I've heard that uh, Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet to, to show how stupid romantic love was. And, and even the idea of dating uh, and courtship has probably only existed for less than 100 years in Western culture and still doesn't exist in Eastern culture. Uh, marriages are still arranged in, in many Eastern cultures. So, yeah, the, 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 what we tend to believe is normal relationship behavior is nothing like what's actually programmed into our DNA through, you know, millions of years of evolution. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at, you know, how long human beings have been around and how long some of these institutions and practices have been around, it's, it's a blip of a blip of a blip. I mean, it's <laughs> yes. nothing. No, no wonder we haven't figured these things out. No wonder so many of us are struggling so much. It's like, yeah, ab absolutely. It was, I remember when I discovered how new like romantic marriage was and my jaw hit the floor, you know, cause, cause I'm a history yeah. guy. I always look back at, you know, uh, you know, the, the history of things and where they come from. And it's like, it, I think that, you know, our modern romantic sexual dating confusion makes a lot more sense when you look at it in the grand grand historical picture yeah because we have not been at this stuff for for very long i yeah. uh i i really i hope to have you back someday because i've covered like less than half of the questions that i wanted to ask you but there's one thing i, I really wanted to get to you you were talked on a podcast and i found this really um intriguing and i think uh important you're talking about some you're offering some seduction advice 
and you said touch, tease, tell. This is kind of your your three T's. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think this is a, a nice kind of um, nice kind of tool to to carry around with us. Yeah, and. I, I, I'm not a fan of the word seduction. I know where you're coming from. Mm. In fact, uh, the, my definition of seduction is trying to get somebody to like you. Um, and, and because you don't think they'll like you just the way you are. Um, and so what I, when I teach, I, 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 when I teach dating and, and, and teach really interaction between men and women, whether you're dating, uh, looking for love or you're in a relationship, I, 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 I couch it in terms of, of, um, leaning into attraction rather than, uh, approach, meaning that I'm not going to go, Oh, she's hot. I'm going to go, you know, approach her and use these seduction techniques to get her to want to be with me. I think it works a lot better to when, when people are just attracted to you as you are and send you signals of availability. I liken it to pounding on a closed door versus walking through an open door. And again, I'll quote David data when he says, choose a woman who, who chooses, chooses you. you. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So that, that, you know, guys say, you mean, that means I got to go with, you know, the, these women I'm not attracted to. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that if you're just basing, oh, this woman's hot, therefore I want to get her to like me and she has no interest in you and doesn't even know you exist. That's a lot of work and probably isn't going to pay off very well. So, but back to the three T's. What I tell guys, I, I try to teach them, don't turn this into a technique that say, okay, I, I need to touch a woman in this way. I need to tell her what to do or, you know, I, I need to tease her. But it's more of a reminder to not hold back. The men I work with pre-reject and pre-censor themselves so much. They have a thought or an impulse, but they don't act on it because they're afraid, well, that might offend her or, you know, she, she, she may reject me. Or, and so we're so passive that there's nothing, there's nothing to create what I call positive emotional tension with a woman. And women need emotional tension to feel attraction, attachment, and sexual desire for a man or for, for, towards anybody. And nice guys don't create that. And by holding back, we, we never touch the woman when we have the impulse because we think, oh, it might be offensive to her. Or we never tell her what to do. Oh, that'll make me controlling. Or we never tease her. We might think of something funny or clever to say, but we go, no, I better not say that. So mainly is the touch, tease, tell, the three T's, is a reminder to just take the sensors off. Be bold, be who you are, be willing to crash and burn, be willing to, you know, get to rejection quickly and find out this person has low interest in having an interaction. You, you'll never know that if you're just being passive with them all the time. And, and I tell guys, it can be as simple. And again, most men try to turn everything into rocket science. We make things way too <laughs> difficult. It can be as simple. I tell guys, listen, a, a simple application of touch, tease and tell might be you go to a speed date event and you sit down next to a woman, you reach out, touch the top of her arm and say, you go first, tell me your favorite dumb joke. And then if she can't think of one, you kind of tease her about not having a favorite dumb joke. Or, you know, if she does tease her about having a dumb joke, right? And it, it's just being playful. So you've already touched her. You already told her what to do. You've already brought, you know, some fun into the experience. None of this would being, you know, th this isn't hard to do. But it's just a reminder, don't hold back. We, 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 we are tribal. We, we are like the bonobos. We do crave touch. We do crave connection. We do crave sense of security and safety. And, and when a man 
can be himself and competently touch, tease, and tell. And and the telling is, I tell guys, is, is telling her to do what she already wants to do. It's not bossing her around to get your way or have control or make her do something that you want. That's not what it's about. It's just about creating some sense of boldness and strength that activates this evolutionary sense of security and trust and desire within a woman. So I tell guys, just play with it. And almost every guy gets, has at least one of those three T's becomes a stumbling block that they just can't bring themselves to tell or to tease or to touch. And okay, it's, but these are, this is part of our masculine initiation of if, if we consciously start interacting with women in these bolder, more powerful ways, it will initiate more of us into that scary world of the masculine. So um, yeah, go, go out and play with it. Make it fun. Make every interaction you have with a woman fun. Make her make her want to have more and more of those interactions. Yeah, absolutely. And my definition of seduction is different from yours, but I, I understand your your point is well taken. G- and, and g- give me yours. I'd like to hear it. I, I I think when I when I think of that word, and this might sound cheesy, but I, I kind of think of like the art of like creating sparks, making a little bit of magic happen. I don't think of it yeah. in a in a kind of dark. I'm trying to extract something, or I'm trying to get something from someone. I'm kind of just I, 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 when I hear that word, when I think of that word, it's very playful, very fun. Um, sure. and it's, it's, yeah. And, and, and a lot of it comes down to the, you know, touching, teasing, telling. And, you know, one thing that I, I tell guys, I'm sure you do too, like, like this isn't for speed dating events or, or first date only. I mean, do this to your wife or girlfriend. And I'm someone yes. who probably errs on the side of teasing too much. Um, but you know, don't, don't stop doing that stuff. In fact, you know, you need, in some ways you need to do it more, right? The, I always say the seduction never stops, right? Um, you know, I, that, I agree. Yeah. Creating those I, I tell guys, whatever you did on a third date with a woman, you better still be doing it three years later, 30 years later, you know, just keep showing up and being playful. And yeah, like I said, I, I, I love being with my wife and, and my stepkids. We, we all joke all the time. We're playful. We tell the same dumb jokes over and over again. Um, and they, and they, they don't even speak English. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm learning Spanish. So <laughs> we, we, we bilingually tease and joke. Lots of touching. Uh, just our whole family touches a lot. Um, and my wife loves it when I lead. She says, I love it when you tell me no. We go in a restaurant. She tells the waiter, he's the boss. He'll order. And I go, yeah, I'm the boss every, you know, as long as she tells me I am. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll laugh about it. But she likes the leadership. She's she's stronger than I am. She can squat the same amount that I can. She's a wow. gym rat. Uh, she's taking my tie. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to mess with her. She's strong. But she <laughs> loves it. She loves knowing that she has a man that can set the tone and lead. And I usually do it very playfully, very lovingly, um, with a lot of affection. So, yeah, if you do it on a third date, and you better be doing it on a third date, and I hope you're still doing it three years, 30 years later. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I like the way you put that a lot. Uh, last question. What, what are you working on right now? I mean, you've been at this for a long time. I'm, I'm curious about what, what you're currently focused on right now in terms of your work. And what are you most excited about at this point? Okay, I uh, <laughs> this is a longer story. I'll keep it short. I almost died earlier this year. Um, I, I was sick for about three months. Nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. I was losing weight. I had constant stomach spasms. Uh, couldn't eat. Uh, just 
lost over 30 pounds, went to doctors in the U.S., Mexico, misdiagnosed, undiagnosed. Finally, a doctor here in Mexico ran the right test and found out I had a tumor in my small intestine. And so I, I had surgery just in January of this year, and, and the tumor was completely blocking my small intestine. I was, I was probably about to either starve to death or it was going to burst and burst my small intestine. And I came out of surgery like, I'm alive. I'm awake. I had no energy. I was sleeping most of the time, just felt bad most of the time. And, uh, man, I'm, I'm alive. And uh, I, in part of this program, the men program I'm in with John Wineland, he has a set what he calls an impossible goal of, of what we want to accomplish before we die. And I thought, okay, my goal is I'm going to write 10 books in 10 years. And I already know the titles of all of them I want to work on. And they're not, and I'm 62 now, and I don't know how much time I got left, but they're not going to write themselves. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just writing up a storm. I've just completed a book that should be out in the next month or so. Uh, it's an e-book called Dating Essentials for Men. It's a compilation of all my previous dating uh, essentials courses. It'll have um, a package people can buy online on my website that has a uh, uh, an A to Z encyclopedia of all the questions I've answered about dating in the past, recordings of my live Q&As, podcasts. Um, the next book that's already completely outlined that I'll dive into to getting it written, probably hopefully get dive into that next month or two, uh, is a book around the concept of positive emotional tension that I mentioned, of how women have to have emotional tension to feel attraction and sexual arousal towards men, and men hate emotional tension in relationship. So like you said, we, we try to kill it and get it get it, everything back to smooth and better. So that is the next book. And then I've got a whiteboard over here to my right that says 10 books, 10 years, 2028, that has about 10 to 12 subject matters that I've either already have a class I've, I've been teaching on them or there's something new I want to develop. So I'm just, I'm writing. So that, that's, that's what, that's, uh, you know, and, and in 10 years, I'll probably, the list will still have 10 more titles on it. Uh, cause ideas keep coming up that, yeah, I want to write about that too. So I'm, I'm going to be planning on writing for a while. That's great. And we're, we're very, very glad. I'm very glad you're still here because uh, your work is important. And I, I'm very, very curious to see how that pans out. That, that's a tall order, man. Ten books in ten years. But I'm, 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 I'm eager to see how that turns out for sure. Um, I'm, I, I, yeah. I'm convinced I can do it. Uh, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I'm not doubting you at all. But uh, yeah, that's 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 yeah, I like I like a big goal like that. And the best way people can connect with you is drglover.com. Is that right? Yeah, just drglover.com. If they want to Google No More Mr. Nice Guy, if they want to Google Robert Glover, I have several top spaces on both of those pages. So, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. Great. And before I let you go, this is an exercise I like to do sometimes. I'd like you to finish these sentences with the first thing that comes to mind using as few words as possible, if you don't mind. So, the trait I am most attracted to in the opposite sex is... Playfulness and intelligence. I would most like to be remembered as. Somebody that made the world a better place. Love is. Everything. <laughs> what a beautiful note to close on. Dr. Glover, thank you so much for your time today. This was a real treat. Zachary, I had fun. Uh, it's a great interview. Uh, look forward to, to hearing it and spreading it around. 
have it, my friends. I hope you benefited from that conversation in some way. I look forward to having Dr. Glover back on the podcast in the future. So please be sure to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. And also while you're at it, why don't you leave a rating and a review? As I mentioned at the top, ratings and reviews are really important and they mean a lot to me. So if you dig the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. I'll also mention that you can find links to Dr. Glover and everything we talked about in today's episode at humansinlove.com. There you have it, my friends. I hope you have a really good rest of week. I hope you feel inspired and energized this week. And I'll remind you that life is short, far too short to be struggling with nice guy syndrome. Thank you, my friends. I will talk to you next Tuesday. Thank you.